You are listening to the John DePietro Show on 99.9 FM and 1380 AM. News Talk WNRI. Well, folks, good afternoon. You're listening to the John DePietro Show. It's AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. I want to go. They're doing closing arguments now. Trial of Alex Murdoch after they had visited the crimes. One hour and 15 minutes for lunch. Please do not discuss the case. All right, I'm going to go then. Um, let me hear if they come on with some highlights here. Um, this portion of the program brought to you by the Lodge, Lodge Pub and Eatery, 40 Breakneck Hill Road in Lincoln. Lunch, dinner, drinks in the lounge. They're waiting for you at the Lodge Pub and Eatery, 40 Breakneck Hill Road in Lincoln. All right, I want to um, find out and hear a little bit of some of the closing arguments here with the Murdoch, Alec Murdoch trial. This is the guy in South Carolina. The jury went out to the area where the, um, let's see, let me hear this. Prosecutor Waters kicked off his closing argument telling the jury one person killed the discreet lawyer's wife and son on June 7th. I want to, let's hear some of this. Moselle property in Carlton County. Maggie Murdoch and Paul Murdoch were brutally and maliciously murdered at the kennels by Alec Murdoch. Paul, as you know, suffered two shotgun blasts. Uh. Maggie suffered five blackout rifle wounds. Uh. And after an exhaustive investigation, there is only one person who had the motive, who had the means, yep. who had the opportunity yep. to commit these crimes, right. and also whose guilty conduct after these crimes betrays him. Right. The defendant was the one person who was living a lie. The defendant is the person on which a storm was descending. Wow. And the defendant is a person where his own storm would actually mean consequences for Maggie and Paul mm. and consequences for those who trusted him. The guy's a total nutcase. And that person is the defendant, Richard Alexander Murdoch. Yep. I know this has been a long trial because it's a complicated case. And I'm not going to talk forever. I promise. But I am going to try to distill this down for you. And the first thing I want to do is set the stage. And to set the stage, we have to understand a little bit about Alec Murdoch and who he was and who he is. He was a person of singular prominence and respect in this community. Yep. But he's also a person who's been able to avoid accountability for all of his life. While he was outwardly giving the illusion of wealth and a very lucrative law practice, some bad land deals and that sort of thing, exacerbated by uh, the economic recession, led to some financial problems. To put it mildly, as a matter of fact. All right, good afternoon at 109. I really hope they nail this guy. But you never know with jurors. You never... Oh, 
Okay. I think so. Everyone's on break right now. You, um, boy, as we saw even locally with the with the the Officer Gagan trial, how in you know the officer was off duty in Pawtucket that shot and and um, wounded the teens, even though it had no jurisdiction. Let me see this. Uh, Lauren Crime Network. 76,000 viewers voted in our poll on YouTube. 35% think the jury will be hung. If they try him again, that's that's tough because I, I think he will work. He is an attorney. So I think he'll he'll work on his, his uh, defense better. And sharpen it. But at the same time, well, we'll talk to our legal expert, Tim Dodd, about this. While at the same time, they'll be able to put uh, together a, a smoother a smoother presentation. So, but the, the, um, let me just see this. I, I, it's so hard, and you know what else is is very difficult is, I don't know what's a South Carolina jury like. Is the South Carolina jury similar to the Rhode Island jury that that let Officer Dolan go? I mean, is it? Can we? Should we believe that maybe it's the same type of crowd that? I mean, because. Dolan totally should have been convicted other than the without question the the kids in the Dolan trial that was the off duty off duty Pawtucket police officer that shot those kids because he felt they were going fast on the highway I I think um they, they didn't help themselves. Now, again, they're young, and he was completely, I think, in the wrong. All right, let me play. The jury has visited the crime scene. And uh, this is the latest, both sides preparing for the trial. So let me hear a little bit of this. This trial from the beginning. So give us some color on this. What has it been like inside that courtroom? Well, there have been a range of days inside this courtroom, some very dramatic days. You can see that testimony with Ronnie Crosby, uh, Dick Harputlin, the defense attorney, uh, talking to him yesterday. Heated exchanges. There have been sort of bombshell moments as well, that video of the dog kennel being played for the first time. So you could hear people's reaction. These have been packed courtrooms. If you look behind me, you'll see there's a line. These people can't even go into the courtroom until 11 a.m. today because that's when court starts here at the courthouse, but they've been lined up since in the middle of the night, making sure that they can get a spot in this courtroom. So there's been a lot of uh, reaction that you can hear from the crowd, but also we've been watching the jury. This jury has been carefully watching this case from the beginning, and now, even six weeks in, they're still being shown these very gruesome, gory pictures. They looked at autopsy images just the other day, and there's the reaction on their faces to seeing those images still very difficult for them to look at. 
Eva, there are some strict rules in place for the jurors while they're visiting the crime scene today. So what will the jurors be doing there and what is the defense hoping to get out of this trip? So, Diane, we just saw the jurors leaving in the vans from the back of the courthouse. It was about 9-10 when they pulled out to head to Moselle, where that crime scene is, right by those dog kennels. And the defense team saying they wanted the jurors to see the crime scene for themselves, so they could see how small it was, but also so they could see how close the two bodies were to each other. So, Eva, what happens next in this case? Well, the jury. So they'll come back after this visit to the crime scene this morning, and there will be a hearing about the charges and how to charge the jury. And then this afternoon, we are expecting the closing arguments will start. And after the closing arguments finish, they will charge the jury, giving them an explanation, information about how these charges work, and the jury will begin to deliberate. They will decide the fate of Alec Murdoch. Eva, there's been a lot of conversations throughout this trial as to whether or not this jury should have been sequestered. How careful has the judge been and how careful does this judge have to be? The judge has been very clear to the jury every morning when they come in and every afternoon when they leave that they are not to have spoken to anyone about this case, that the, the, what they see in this courtroom stays in the courtroom and, and no one is to approach them. They're taken in and out separately from everyone else that is going into this courthouse. Uh, and then there is some question as to if and when the jury begins their deliberation. If at that point they will be sequestered, we're still waiting to see what the decision is on that. Um, but definitely there's there's been some, they've protected this jury from the crowds that have been here, uh, and they have made it very clear to them they're not to discuss what they're seeing. You know, that is, um, again, folks, it, it, it has been a very, very interesting case. And it's also been going on so long now, five weeks. So I, 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 but this guy, he's an attorney. The father that has been charged, he's an attorney. So he talks in, he talks like an attorney. He knows how to phrase things. The guy is a pathological liar, as a matter of fact. So, I mean, I, the more you learn about it, and again, if you are interested in it, I've mentioned the the piece on Netflix about the case is very, very, very good. And they talk about the family and the background on the family. And so I think um, if you want to get kind of caught up to speed, the it's um, let me just say this is a CBS Evening News piece on the case. Here we go. We're resting their case today. Prosecutors called back several witnesses to rebut yes. parts of um, Alex Murdahl's defense. Among them, Murdahl's former law partner. He was uh, a theatrical type presence in the courtroom, and, and and he could get very emotional doing closing arguments in front of a jury. Take but the defense's cross examination got heated. I have no feeling one way or the other. He was grilled about his motive in testifying against Murdoch, who stole millions of dollars from the firm. You are not angry with Alec Murdoch? I have had 
anger with him, extreme anger, Mr. Hart Kutlin, because of what he did to my law firm. But you can't walk around with anger. You have to find a way to deal with it. The last witness, a crime scene expert, disputed the defense's theory that the shooter had to be a foot shorter than Murdoch, who is 6'4". Could it have been a 6'4 person? He could have. Four, six, four, or in my opinion, a seven, four, as I just demonstrated. The jury will soon begin deliberations in this highly circumstantial case with no recovered murder weapons and no eyewitnesses. We often have crimes which are committed and which there are convictions for where no one is an eye or ear witness and circumstantial evidence carries the day. Yep. The jury will visit the Murdoch estate where Maggie and Paul were murdered tomorrow morning before closing arguments begin. A sale of that Murdoch property is expected to close the next week for about $4 million. You know, he, um, you just don't know where it's going to go, folks. We just, we don't know where it's going to go. Well, good afternoon. You're listening to the John DePietro Show. Right now, it's 119. It's Wednesday. It's March 1st. It's a good melting day out there. This portion of the program, hey, we are a couple of weeks away from spring. And this portion of the program is brought to you by Limitless Outdoors. Limitless Outdoors. Now, with Limitless Outdoors, their slogan is Dream, Build, Enjoy. Call today for a free quote. Call Chris at Limitless Outdoors, 401-580-1852, 401-580-1852, Limitless Outdoors. Let's talk about the outside of your home. They specialize in patios, walkways, steps, outdoor kitchens, landscape lighting, retaining walls, lawn installation, excavation, Limitless Outdoors. Full design service. Call them today. The base in Smithfield, 401-580-1852. 401-580-1852 for Limitless Outdoors. Instead of adding on to your home, why not just add a nice, you know, really have a beautiful area outside that you can enjoy? A lot of people, how about the people that they go away? If you go away for the winter, maybe you go down, you know, go for the season down somewhere warmer in um, in the wintertime. Well, then, you know, then you really want to be able to have, you could have a nice patio area that you can enjoy. Limitless outdoors. How about an outdoor fireplace or an outdoor kitchen or fire pit? Limitless outdoors. Remember. Dream, build, enjoy. Call Chris, free quote, 401-580-1852. Well, good afternoon. Right now it's 121. You're listening to the John DePietro Show. It's AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. I also want to comment this Congressional District 1 race. Congressman Cicilline is leaving at the end of May. Earlier, we spoke with Dan McGowan of the Boston Globe, and we've also seen that Attorney General Pina Narona has said he's not interested. So this seems to break it down. Now, there's several people that are stepping forward that are interested in running. But right away, to me, the race comes down to Helena Bonanno folks 
who ran against Governor McKee, former CEO of CVS. Remember, she beat Governor McKee on day of voting in that September primary. To me, the race begins and ends with her. I, I think it's her race to lose. Who else may run? Speaker Joe Sakachi. That would be interesting. A very powerful position. Speaker of the House. And using all the power and endorsements of the party to go for that race. That would be an interesting candidacy. It would kind of be the insider versus the outsider. Who else is mentioned? Lieutenant Governor Sabina Matos. Now, the Lieutenant Governor... It's a free shot for her. If she spends the year running and loses, what has she lost? I Not really, to me, not much of a lose. So she is someone else that, to me, cannot be counted out. People have asked me about a Republican candidate and trying to be realistic about it. I, I don't. For three reasons why I think it's going to be very difficult for a Republican to win Congressional District 1. And those three reasons are Providence, Pawtucket, and Central Falls. And mainly Providence. The last person that held that office was Congressman Ron Makeley, who left in 1994. And then who took that seat? Patrick Kennedy. So you're almost coming up on, think of that, 30 years ago. It was 30, almost, next year is 24, 30 years ago. And think of the first district in 1993 and 1994 compared to 2023, or excuse me, yeah, 2023 and what's going to be 2024. Think how the population in Providence has changed. Think how the population in, in Pawtucket has changed. And different parts, Woonsocket. But definitely Providence, Pawtucket, Central Falls, parts of Newport have changed. The East Bay is all blue. East Providence, totally blue. Barrington, Warren, Bristol, Middletown, Newport. There are no Republicans holding office. None. And But the death knell is Providence. You know, 30 years ago... You know, the area of Pawtucket, parts of Pawtucket, maybe urban, but not the way it is now. Again, and I say that as someone that, because of covering crime, I spend quite a bit of time in those three areas. And it has changed a lot. And less Republican friendly. That's just a fact. We'll see if a Republican actually runs and who that individual ends up being. Now, someone who is gaining a lot of attention, whether people like her or not, but that is former Governor Gina Raimondo, now Secretary Raimondo. And I believe she is auditioning. She wants to be considered for vice president. I know there's a lot of talk. They normally don't remove, you know, there's a lot of talk that, Vice President Harris, that the Biden people might remove her. Um, And I know you heard that with Dan Quayle. You'll hear it from time to time. 
You heard that with Bush was maybe going to replace Cheney. So, but whether or not it actually happens, she wants to be mentioned in any conversation. Now, this is her last night, and she's on Fox News with Brett Baer. So, I want you to listen to this. Gina Raimondo. Thanks for having us. Thank you for coming. You have a a big program that you're launching starting tomorrow. Tell us about it. Yes, it's the Chips for America program, and starting tomorrow, companies, semiconductor companies interested to apply for the incentives are able to begin. I just want to stop it just for a moment, because I I want this, I want people to understand the significance, the fact that she's even going on Fox. President Biden won't do an interview on Fox. He blew it off on Super Bowl Sunday. That was the tradition. Whoever's the president sits down and does an interview with the network that has the Super Bowl. Biden wouldn't do that. So could Mayor Biden, President Biden will not do an interview on Fox. Will Mayor Pete do an interview on Fox? No. Will the vice president do an interview on Fox? No. So what is very significant here. Is Secretary Raimondo, this is today's version of being bipartisanship. She's the person in the cabinet that can sit down. Do you think um, Orcus? All right, let me hear this again. This is Brett Baer. We are at the Commerce Department, and joining us now is the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo. Thanks for having us. Thank you for coming. Great you have a, a big program that you're launching starting tomorrow. Tell us about it. Yes, it's the Chips for America program, and starting tomorrow, companies, semiconductor companies interested to apply for the incentives are able to begin applying. So Congress has sent $52 billion to us here at the Commerce Department, and it's our job to invest that, working with companies to make chips in America. And that was a bipartisan effort, um, because this issue we hear from Republicans and Democrats is a really big deal. Yeah, it's a national security issue. I mean, we buy 90% of our sophisticated chips from Taiwan. We make none of those chips in America. And so you're exactly right. I mean, Speaker Pelosi voted for the bill. Mitch McConnell voted for the bill. I worked and the president worked in a bipartisan fashion. And I plan to implement it in that way. You know, it's all national security investment. How long before we as a country start to see a competitive advantage by doing what we're doing now? Yeah, it's a great question. And it'll take years, which is why we have to get going. I mean, every one of these facilities could take a couple of years to build. And then they have to scale up and, you know, become efficient. And more states competing as well? Yes, exactly. So every, you know, every governor out there thinks the next chip factory will be in their state. They will compete. I'm sure they'll put incentives on the table. Um, and, you know, that's what they should do. So here is uh, Senator Todd Young. The Chinese are trying to weaponize our economic interdependence with their country, cutting off uh, imports of various things, disrupting supply chains. We can't allow them to do that with a mission-critical component like a semiconductor. It seems like he's singing from the same sheet of music here. Yes, and he's a leader in this. I work very closely with the senator on this. But he's exactly right. I mean, forget about the fact that we're overly reliant on Taiwan. The fact that we buy 92% of chips from any country, it's absolutely untenable. Every piece of military equipment, every drone, every satellite, every 
every weapon system depends upon chips. And the fact that we don't make them in this country is a huge vulnerability. I want to ask you about the economy overall, and obviously this factors into that uh, for jobs and manufacturing. Um, the president was asked by David Muir about the economy. He said this. Four in ten Americans say they're worse off than when you were elected. Only 16% said they were better off. So why is that? Well, look, I think it goes well beyond the economy. Think about it. You make the news. I mean, you interview for the news. Can you think of anything I turn on the television and go, God, that makes me feel good. Almost anything. Everything is in the negative. But people are feeling it at home, a concern about the economy. As Commerce Secretary, how do you look at that? Yeah, but the economy is strong. You know, unemployment is very low. Businesses are hiring. Obviously, the tech industry, I think, overhired, and they're correcting for that. Uh, wages are up. People are working. Inflation uh, has, is coming down, steadily coming down, but that's something that people see, you know, every time they go to the grocery store and such. So if inflation doesn't abate quickly, takes a little longer, maybe it doesn't move as much, is there a plan to, to change track? You know, I think Chairman Powell, that's a question for him more than it is for me, uh, he has said he's on it, you know, looking at it vigilantly, but obviously the Fed has has the big tool uh, when it comes to controlling inflation. You know, your name comes up when talking about the next Treasury Secretary. Is that a job that you would want? No, we just talked about all the work I have to do here. <laughs> <laughs> we did talk about whether a changing agenda will be, there will be an economic change of agenda for the Biden administration. Do you foresee that? I don't. I really don't. Uh, you know, I've run a business. I've been a governor. I now work for the president. But this economy is strong. You see it everywhere. People are working. People are getting raises. Companies are getting started. Money is flowing. You come from a unique place. You mentioned you're a former governor. It's a different ballgame. You were the yeah. number one executive. Now you come to the bureaucracy of Washington. Mm. Explain that to somebody. How is that working? Uh, occasionally frustrating. But it's working. You know, I run this place like an executive. I have a vision. I'm recruiting a team, and we move out on it. And we're getting a lot done. So you just, you cannot, you just have to get in there. I, I played rugby in college. Did I, was, I did. I was a scrum half. And, like, you got to get in the mix and get to work. Push, move through the problems, you get things done. You know, I played the soundbite of Senator Young earlier, a Republican from Indiana. A lot of people say Washington doesn't work, it's broken and partisan. Uh, you work with Republicans. I do. Does that happen a lot? In my experience, it has. Uh, I have had excellent meetings with Leader McConnell. I work incredibly closely with Senator John Cornyn, Republican from Texas. Also, obviously, I work with all the Democrats. I think it can. You know, this CHIPS Act, bipartisan. The Infrastructure Act, bipartisan. Another piece of work I'm doing is, is broadband, you know, making sure every American has the Internet. That was a bipartisan bill. Uh, all the work I'm doing on export controls to deny China technology, bipartisan. you got to look for where you can find that common ground. I like that title, common ground. That's a good one. Um, last thing. There are people who look at the president and say, listen, you know, he, he's 80 years old. He's the oldest president that we have. If he gets reelected, he could be 84. You work with him. 
for somebody sitting at home that says, how is he doing this? It's a tough job for a 50-year-old. Does he have the capacity to do it another time? Absolutely. He has more energy than I do. He works us what is all she under supposed the table. To I can say, say that. No one certainty. believes that. I've traveled with him to Korea, Japan, Mexico. We no work way. the entire time on the flight. You get there. We no brief way. him. He works. He works the flight home. So how does he do it? I don't know. But he's doing it and he's doing a great job. And you're pretty sure he's running for re-election? I hope he does. Madam Secretary, we appreciate the time. We'll follow the uh, semiconductor issue. Thank you. Now, folks, that is, again, I wanted to play it. That is former Rhode Island Governor, now Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. And good afternoon, everyone. You're listening to the John DePietro Show at 134 on this Wednesday, March 1st on AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. Think of that interview that she just did on Fox News, no less. And I'm going to repeat what I said. Could Mayor Pete Buttigieg says, do an interview? Absolutely not. He wouldn't talk to any reporters because of the fiascos going on with the train derailments, let alone, he's certainly not. There are also people that will frown on her for even sitting down with Fox News. Could Vice President Harris, Kamala Harris, could she do an interview with Fox News? She's incapable of doing an interview. Could President Biden sit down with Fox News? He refused. What about Mayorkas? The disaster at the border refuses. Dan McGowan, who we spoke to earlier, was right. The amount of individuals and animosity that must be building towards Ramundo. Marty Walsh just left. He's going to run the NHL. Biden named his new labor secretary. And, you know, it's it's certainly no one too impressive, that's for sure. So I never heard of the woman. It seemed to be another, you know, let's let's go diversity, blah, blah, blah. But right now, and I recognize a lot of people don't fully get it, but his cabinet, Kamala Harris, vice president, let's just go with, could she sit down with Fox News? The answer is no. She, she can't do any interviews, let alone Fox News. Anthony Blinken, secretary of state, he's gotten a lot of press because of, obviously, Ukraine and other matters. And also because of China, his trip to China was canceled. But you don't hear him being praised. But he's not as elusive. Janet Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury, that's the post that Raimondo wants. She does some interviews. She does some. I won't say that she hides. Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense. Well, Afghanistan. Merrick Garland, Attorney General. He's come under fire because of the the raid on Mar-a-Lago. Deb Halen, Secretary of the Interior. 99% of people could not pick her out, and I've never even heard her interviewed. Tom Vilsick, Secretary of Agriculture. Not a player in the cabinet. 
Gina Raimondo, Secretary of Commerce. You just heard her. They need to update this. Marty Wall, Secretary of Labor. He left. He's now going to run the NHL. Secretary of Health and Human Services. Basira, that guy's come under fire. He, he can't sit down for an interview on Fox 2's. Marsha Fudge, HUD. Haven't seen her interviewed. Secretary of Transportation, Mayor Pete. Completely incompetent, lightweight, in over his head. Another one who is incapable of doing an interview. Jennifer Graham, Secretary of Energy. Um, I think they're upset with her because the leak on the Wuhan lab. Dr. Miguel Cardona, Secretary of Education. Don't know him. Dennis McDonough, Secretary of Veteran Affairs. Again, maybe he's doing a good job. I have no idea. Mayorkas, Homeland Security. The borders are not secure. Could he sit down for an interview? The answer is no. Michael Regan, Ministry of the Environmental Protection Agency. EPA. I don't, I don't know who that guy is. Avril Haynes, Director of National Intelligence. Uh, pretty low key. For, and for a reason. Not sure. She's undecided. Catherine, T- she could sit down. I mean, I, as far as she could sit down for an interview with Fox, that woman. Catherine Tai, trade representative, no idea. Linda Thomas Greenfield, United States Ambassador of the United Nations. I have no idea who that is. Dr. Cecil Rose, Chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. It seems pleasant. Shalanda Young, Director of the Office of Management and Budget. Isabel Guzman, Small Business Administration. No idea. Jeff Zients, chief of staff, replaced, um, what's his name? And Dr. Rennerbrocker, director of the office. I don't know who that person is. So, boy, the White House still has not even updated that Marty Walsh is out. But, folks, my point is, around here, people would, would, you know, frown, Ramondo. But look at, that's her competition. And on the, the national front, who else do you have? You have Elizabeth Warren. You have Gavin Newsom, Pelosi, Schumer. That's it. Those are her competitors right now. So, not a lot. Now, last night, there was another shooting in Providence. Not fatal, though. Man shot in the arm in Providence. I did get information from Providence police. 42-year-old man drove himself to the hospital. Shot in the arm. Port of a gunshot, 10.30, around Pearl Street. I know I missed it. But it was it was uh, wet and slippery last night. So when officers arrived, they found shell casings. He was at the hospital being treated non-life-threatening. No word in suspects what led up to the shooting. Is he, are we to believe he's cooperating with police? That is, folks, at 141, Good afternoon. You're listening to the John DePietro Show. It's AM 1380 and 909.9 FM. Um, there, is, there is no, and there should be, but seemingly no effort to try to get People in certain areas to cooperate with police. Channel 10 also has this story. Do we have sound on this? Rhode Island first 
report. Oh, there is. Hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll play that if I can pull it up. It was the first report of the virus was three years ago today. Remember, it was the guy from St. Raphael's who went to Italy on the trip. We then also learned, today marks the um, three years since Dr. Scott and Governor Raimondo stood up there and said a case of the virus had arrived in Rhode Island. And I want to, I'm going to touch on that in a moment, but let me just hear the, here we go. Since the first COVID case was confirmed in the state of Rhode Island, NBC 10's Liz Bateson is at our live alert desk with a look at how far we've come. Liz, good morning. Good morning, Allison. The very first case in Rhode Island was traced back to an international trip at St. Ray's Academy. The vice principal spent weeks in the hospital recovering. It then set off a, a chain reaction with schools, restaurants, and businesses all shutting their doors. By mid-March, the state had 83 cases. By the end of the month, Rhode Island reported its first two deaths. Those numbers only continued to rapidly grow. By May, there were more than 10,000 cases and 370 deaths. By the end of 2020, Rhode Island surpassed 60,000 positive cases. Life as we knew it changed drastically. Until we have a vaccine, which is about a year away, we're going to be living under a new set of circumstances. Now, three years later, we have multiple vaccines and boosters, but we are still feeling the impacts. Rhode Island is just one of five states that still has an emergency declaration in place. President Biden plans to end the national emergency in May. Students are back in the classroom, but other things have taken longer to return to normal. Just last week, poker returned to Twin River for the first time in three years. <laughs> and there's still a lot of questions about the origins of the like pandemic. That. The U.S. Department of Energy recently said with low confidence that it may have been the result of a lab leak. But China continues to push back on that. At the live alert desk, Liz Bateson, NBC 10 News. Uh, Thank you, Liz. Folks, well, you know what else we, we did not realize at the time was the man, the vice principal at St. Ray's that ended up, he was patient number one in Rhode Island with COVID. And he had underlying health problems. And that really became what, what, what happened that spring with college students and students, it, it was just so rotten what we did to all those individuals. And to, even to this day, it became, you know, it's a partisan thing where you have the, the progressives like to wear a mask. Other people have gotten back to normal. Um, just rotten. Folks, 144. I'm going to play this piece about the EBT cards because this is big. But this portion of the program, folks, on this March 1st in the roads, there's good melting. Roads are clear. Hey, you want to be healthy, pop in and see Marie at It's My Health, 1099 Menden Road in Cumberland, diagonally across from Davidport Restaurant. It's My Health. If you're on Menden Road right now, you could pop down that historic white church. Marie has the flag out front. Vitamins, herbal remedies, homeopathic remedies, trusted companies, local products, ICE, honey, maple syrup, over 250 bulk herbs, teas, and spices, hemp and CBD products. Folks, it's my health. Marie also has delicious teas. She has great tasting spices and herbs that are good for you. 
And I've talked about this in the past. For instance, the type of mushrooms that she has. If you just sprinkle some of those into some of the different sauces you may use, maybe, maybe uh, you know, gravy pasta sauce and so forth. It's, it's so good for you and it tastes good. And you want to support a great local retailer like Marie at It's My Health, 1099 Menden Road in Cumberland, diagonally across from Davenport Restaurant. All right, I want to play. So this is a big deal. And computers in the state have been down today. So the first of the month crowd are getting a big awakening that their SNAP benefits have been cut. Listen to this. Here After we pandemic, go. pandemic, SNAP benefits will end in Massachusetts. Yes, they will. NBC 10's Allegra Zamor, though, is live in Attleboro with how you can make the most of your current benefits. Allegra, yep. good morning. Hey, good morning, Mario and Allison. Thousands of Massachusetts families have been getting extra federal SNAP benefits during the pandemic, and those are set to come to an end when those last additional payments go out tomorrow. Congress voted to end the extra payments. Those COVID payments were the difference between your normal benefit amount and the maximum amount for your household. In order to get the most out of those SNAP benefits, the Massachusetts Department of Transitional Assistance recommends letting it know about any expenses that increase beyond your normal benefits. Medical expenses that cost over $35 a month for anyone in your SNAP household who is 60 or older or has a disability. If your household costs have gone up, such as your rent or your mortgage, or if you have dependent care costs for children or disabled adults while you are either working, looking for work, or attending school. And unused SNAP benefits do roll over month to month, so you can save the benefits that you will receive tomorrow. Live in Attleboro, Allegra Zay Moore, NBC 10 News. So that is causing a lot of problems. And on top of that, there's been a um, computer outage with the state that's been causing a lot of problems. Right now, it's 147. You're listening to The John DePietro Show. It's AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. This portion of our program on this Wednesday March 1st, and it's brought to you by Ryan's Appliance Repair. Remember, Ryan's Appliance Repair, where he can, they can fix anything. They come to your home, and they absolutely can fix anything. Call them today, 401-710-7096. 401-710-7096. As we like to say, when your appliance is dying... Just call Ryan, Ryan's Appliance Repair, 401-710-7096. Where is your washing machine or your dryer? You have to be careful, by the way, with your dryer. Because if that is not handled properly, uh, that can result in a fire. Or maybe your dishwasher or maybe your microwave or refrigerator. Maybe your ice machine's not working. Ryan's Appliance Repair. What are you going to do? Throw the refrigerator in the back of the car? Take it back to Sears? No, those days are over. When your appliance is dying, just call Ryan. Ryan's Appliance Repair, 401-710-7096. Now, Ryan also tells me that many times he repairs several appliances in a house. Ryan's Appliance Repair, 401-710-7096. And Saturday appointments are available and all work is guaranteed for 90 days, parts and labor. Ryan's Appliance Repair, 401-710-7096. At 149 on this Wednesday, March 1st, 
This portion of the program is brought to you by the Lodge Pub and Eatery, 40 Breakneck Hill Road in Lincoln. Remember, whether it's lunch, dinner, or you could sit in the lounge, but they they have great food. The staff is terrific. Right now, as you're riding along, maybe you're on 146, you could be at the Lodge Pub and Eatery, 40 Breakneck Hill Road in Lincoln. So the South Carolina murder trial, Alex Murdoch, that's going to continue this afternoon uh, for those that like that. I covered the supposed, I, I admit, the situation with the body that was found in Carbuncle Pond in Coventry. It is odd. It's true. It is unusual. But um, but I, I don't know what to make it. I'm looking at Wall Street Journal right now. The CHIPS Acts, the CHIPS Act becomes industrial social policy. Hmm. Gina Raimondo, this is Wall Street Journal, uses semiconductor subsidies to impose progressive priorities via corporations. This is a Wall Street Journal editorial. So this is not some of the positive press that the Commerce Secretary wants. She wants positive press for her. She's certainly getting a lot of press. But the Wall Street Journal writes, government subsidies are never free. And now we're learning the price. U.S. semiconductor firms and others will pay for signing on to Biden's industrial policy. They'll become the indentured servants of a progressive social policy. Democrats last year snookered Republicans into passing their 280 billion CHIPS Act, which includes 39 billion in direct financial aid for chip makers and a 25% investment tax credit. Republicans hoped this would satisfy West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. But after CHIPS passed, he quickly flipped and endorsed the Inflation Reduction Act. Now the administration is using the semiconductor subsidies to impose much of the social policy that was in the failed Build Back Better bill. On Tuesday, today's Wednesday, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo rolled out the new rules for chip makers, summed up the politics to the New York Times. If Congress wasn't going to do what they should have done, we're going to do it in implementation of the subsidies. Start with child care, which chip makers applying for more than $150 million of federal aid will be required to provide to their employees and construction workers. Get it? Finding workers to run child care facilities, especially in rural areas, may prove even more challenging than finding workers to build and operate the plants. The U.S. child care workforce is still 58,000 smaller than before the pandemic. By boosting demand for childcare, commerce mandate will increase costs for all parents living near a chip plant. But not any childcare will do. Chip makers will have to craft their childcare plans in tandem with community stakeholders, including state, local government, local groups, expertise, i.e. labor unions. And progressive outfits start the woke indoctrinations early, writes the Wall Street Journal. Now, they go on to explain a little bit more. And then they say Ms. Raimondo is, not, is no socialist. But here she's doing the bidding of the Democrat left. 
Does she have a promotion in mind? She justifies this gigantic intervention in the private economy by claiming chip makers won't be successful unless, quote, they find a way to attract, train, put to work and retain women. But companies don't need the government to tell them how to attract and retain workers. Ms. Raimondo's mandates will merely raise business costs. The irony is rich because chip makers have shifted manufacturing to Asia to reduce costs. Producing chips in the U.S. is, how about this, 40% more expensive than overseas. One reason is the U.S. permitting thicket. But chip makers that receive federal largest will still have to comply with more regulation under the National Environment Policy Act. Oh, and commerce is also demanding companies receiving more than $150 million with the U.S. government. A portion of the cash flows are a return that exceeds above the established threshold. No buying back stock for five years either. What a wonderful life if you're a politician. First, pile on regulation that increases business costs. Then dangle subsidies to drive your social policy. And demand a cut of business profits in the bargain. Ramundo's demands weren't specified in the CHIPS Act. And they'll do nothing to bolster national security, which was supposed to be the purpose. The money may not even boost U.S. chip manufacturing by much. Goldman Sachs last autumn estimated the subsidies may increase U.S. market share global chip capacity by less than 1%. Wall Street Journal writes, we took a lot of grief from the big government right for opposing the CHIPS Act. But these conservatives look like chumps for voting for an industrial policy that's now an engine for progressive policy. And one subsidy is never enough. The CHIP subsidies are a good first step, said the president, uh, John Neufler of the Industry Association. Welcome to the French industrial policy. Where the government pays businesses to invest in what, where, and how the government wants. Let's hope it turns out better here. So that is Wall Street Journal calling out former Governor Gina Raimondo. Now, on the national front, President Trump is essentially declaring war against Fox News. Let's see. Some headlines. Showdown before raid. FBI agents and prosecutors argued over Trump. Attorney General Garland faces controversy at oversight hearing. The Don taunts Fox for destruction of America. Chris Christie predicts he'll be indicted by July. And then, of course, the big news out of Chicago that Mayor Lightfoot is out. First made a lose in 40 years. I want to get to the. Um, I, I, train blumps. Uh, Trump blames Fox News for aiding and abetting the destruction of America. <sighs> he took to his truth social. And here's what he posted. If Rupert Murdoch honestly believes the presidential election of 2020, despite massive amounts of proof to the contrary, was not rigged and stolen, 
then he and his group of MAGA-hating globalist rhinos should get out of the news business as soon as possible. Because they're aiding and abetting the destruction of America, all capitals, with fake news. Certain brave and patriotic Fox News hosts who he scorns and ridicules got it right. He got it wrong. They should be admired and praised, not rebuked and forsaken. Now, folks, a big question that I have, and it's more of a question for you. Can President Trump win without Fox News? He doesn't have CNN. He does, Fox News covered him when he went to Ohio. Can, can he win with just Newsmax? I say the answer is no. I want to remind people, when you go back to 2016, right? 2016, President Trump, his rallies used to be, you would flip across. He was on Fox. He was on CNN. He was on MSNBC. He's obviously still friendly with Tucker Carlson. He's obviously still friendly with, I believe, Mark Levin. And obviously, Hannity is his buddy. Meanwhile, Governor DeSantis is essentially right now running for president. And he's doing it with this book tour because he's everywhere. And he's traveling and he's doing interviews. I believe it's a mistake for President Trump to go to war with Fox News. I do. So, And we'll see whether or not he can win the primary, continuing to insist that he won the November 2020 election. Folks, it's 1.59 on this sunny Wednesday. It's John DePietro. Thank you for listening. I will be doing Facebook Live later. Remember, visit the website, dipetro.com. Stay tuned for the 2 o'clock news. WNRI Winsocket.